Shalom. Today we'll be discussing Echa Perk Dalid, um, a much shorter, or a bit shorter of a, of a chapter than our previous three chapters. Now, uh, while this chapter does have the same amount of verses that we have, certainly in the first two chapters, um, it, it is actually a shorter chapter. If the first two chapters each have 22 psukim, 22 verses, each verse of which is made up of three sentences, um, which means that there were 66 sentences in each of the first two chapters. And the third chapter has 66 verses, each of which contain one sentence, meaning the first three chapters are approximately of equal length, certainly in terms of the amount of sentences. The fourth chapter actually has uh, 22 verses with, where each verse contains two sentences. Now, the fifth chapter is going to be even shorter. It's going to have 22 verses, each uh, each verse of which contains only one sentence. So as Echa, as the Megillah, draws to a close, we do have a sense that things are getting shorter, perhaps more succinct. There's less to say. Perhaps the enormity of the tragedy has begun to sink in. And certainly there's a sense that uh, that that the book is beginning to draw to a close. Um, now, we are going to divide this chapter again into two, just as we did the first two chapters. And again, one of the things that we saw is that the third chapter is markedly different. It's divided into three. It has a structure of its own. It has certain techniques and features which belong only to that chapter. And that really shows us the uniqueness of chapter three. Well, in chapter four, we return to the format that we're already familiar with from chapters one and two. And in fact, this chapter is divided into two. Now, its its uh, its division also corresponds in theme to the division in chapter two, and we'll be talking about that soon. Um, however, chapter four is the first chapter not to have any first person uh, perspective at all. There is no. I in this chapter. Actually, there's only an objective narrator who tells this chapter. There's a sense that Am Yisrael, to some extent, has fallen silent. There's very little, I would say, um, emotional drain in this chapter. It seems to be more objective, perhaps more distant. Not that the that the content of the chapter is any less draining, but the destruction, the horror, the suffering is told facts, factually. It is horribly clear. There's almost a sense that it's logical. We have here a sustained third-person account of the destruction, which is basically as horrible as it could possibly be. It's as horrible as it was in uh, the second chapter, but yet there's really a sense here that um, it, it's there's sort of a numbness that seems to to, um, to accompany the telling of this story in this chapter. It's almost as though we've accepted it. Now, the first half of the chapter is characterized by a description of the suffering of the children. Um, it opens the, chap- the, the first half, and that starts in, of course, verse 1, and it closes what we're going to call the first half of this chapter, and that is verse 10. So if in verse 1 we're told, Echa yu'am zahav yishne haketem hatov, tishtapechna avne kodesh, berosh kol chutzot, how has the gold become dimmed, has the good gold changed? Have the precious stones been spilled? 
onto the street corners. Here, of course, we have a metaphor. It, it might not, it might actually not be a metaphor. It might actually be that gold has lost its value. People are throwing gold and precious stones into the street because, of course, when people are starving, the only thing that has value is food. And if your money and your precious stones and your gold can't buy anything anymore, well, then it's of no value. Um, however, it also seems to be a metaphor, a metaphor for the children. If you look at the next verse, the next verse, verse actually explains the first verse. B'nai Tzion hayikarim, the children of Tzion, the children of Yerushalayim, who are precious. Hamisulaim bapaz, who are valued like gold. How have they been thought of as earthenware pots? The work of a craftsman. Right? So he's explaining why these children who once were so valued, valued like gold now are treated like earthenware pots that can simply be tossed out into the street. So it really does seem as though the first verse is not talking, uh, certainly not exclusively, about gold and precious stones, but is in fact um, describing describing the way that people are treating the children. And this is also indicated by the phrase Birosh Kol Chutzot in the first verse, which describes the spilling out of the precious stones on every street corner. And this phrase already appeared in chapter 2 when it was um, describing the, the, the souls of the children who are languishing from hunger. Birosh kol chutzot on every street corner. So if in chapter 2 it was the children who were spilling out onto the street corner who were fainting and languishing from hunger on the street corners, well, here as well in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it seems to be that it's the children who are being tossed out onto the street corner. And this, of course, is very much um, part of the description in this chapter uh, especially, as I said, in the first half of chapter 4, which ends with a terrible description, perhaps the most horrific description in Echa, one that we have already begun to examine in chapter 2. We, we've already uh, caught a glimpse of it, certainly in chapter 2, perhaps also a little bit in chapter 1, and that is the women who have uh, lost their 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 innate mercy for their children and instead are eating their children. And so verse 10 uh, tells us, Yidei nashim rachamaniyot bishlu yaldehen, the hands of merciful women have cooked their children. Hayu levarot lamo, they were food for them. Bishever bat ami, because of the brokenness, because of the crisis of my people. And again, this phrase, al shever bat ami, describes also in chapter 2 in verse 11 the uh, pain of Yerushalayim and when Yerushalayim is describing her pain and if you recall she's unable to continue to cry she says my tears have stopped up in my eyes why? because of the brokenness of my people and what is the brokenness of her people there? well there it is once again the children who are languishing in the streets of the city and are begging their mothers for food and fainting like corpses in their 
in the city and also uh, dying in their mother's arms. And there we ask the question, perhaps briefly, um, whether or not the mother had food that she was refusing to give to the child or if she herself had no food at all. Well, the similarity between these two uh, verses, which talk about the crisis of the people, suggests that the crisis is not the death of the children. The crisis is the breakdown of maternal relationships, of maternal um, mercy, the uh, compassion, what we expect um, mothers to have naturally for their children. So here we have several themes which cohere here in this first part of chapter 4 and which remind us very strongly of the second part of chapter 2. Number one, the death of the children. The children are dying presumably because of famine, but also because they're not being taken care of during the famine. And particularly, there's a tremendous amount of criticism here, which is leveled against the mothers. I don't know if one could call it criticism, but certainly there's a tremendous amount of horror that is expressed as a result of the mothers who have rejected their compassion as a result of the famine. And this, of course, is a terrible uh, result of the famine. It's the kind of uh, situation which led people like um, Golda Meir famously to say, I can forgive our enemies for killing our children, but I cannot forgive our enemies for turning our children into killers. So there's a sense here that the famine is not simply terrible because it is killing our children, but because it is turning our society into a society which is no longer filled with compassion, which is no longer, no longer has the, um, the natural morality that makes, uh, relationships between people viable. Um, now this image of the children and especially I think the relationship between the children and the, uh, parents, uh, here not specifically the mothers, also appears in verses 3 and 4. So that really we see that the first half of this chapter is dominated by the children. What we're told here is, Gam tanim Also, the jackal takes out its breast and nurses its young ones, but my people have become cruel like the ostriches in the desert. Davak lashon yonek el chiko batsama. The, um, the, the tongue of the suckling cleaves to its palate because of thirst. Olalim sha'alu lechem. Young babes ask for food. But there's no one to give it to them. So once again, we have the sense of the children who are experiencing the terrible cruelty of the famine and the terrible cruelty that results from people who experience the famine. Rashi says very explicitly on the words, Bat amil achzar, my, um, the daughters of my nation have become cruel. He says, Roim et b'nehem tzoakim lelechem. They see their children crying out for bread. The ein pores lehem. And there's no one who gives to them. Why? Because their lives come first before the lives of their children as a result of the slow, draining starvation that they experience. Um, now, I, I think, I mean, there have been numerous descriptions of what a famine can do to decent people. 
uh, you know, throughout literature. I refer you, which I won't read right now, but I refer you to Josephus's description in Book 5, Chapter 10, Paragraph 3, in his Wars of the Jews, where he describes how terrible um, society became as a result of the slow, devastating effects of the famine upon the people. Um, so here, that, that I think is the predominant description here in this first section of Parak Dalid of chapter 4. Um, I think that, of course, once again, it reminds us of the idea, the theological approach that we had in Parak Bet, which is a sense of Sadiq Viralo, a sense of someone who suffers even though he is innocent. There is no one who is more innocent than a child, especially a young child, a suckling child. That's what's described here. Their lack of culpability is what is highlighted by the description here of their uh, vulner- of their vulnerability in a situation of famine. They are not able to obtain food for themselves. They rely on others to bring them food. And of course, here we have a description of no one bringing them food. Um, so this is, the, I think, the, the major idea that we have here in this first section of the chapter. I will point out a few other things. Uh, one is that we have here a very uh, strong um, medium of comparison, which is employed here. We've already seen this um, this this uh, medium. We saw it in the very first verse of Echa. Echa yashva vadad ha'ir rabati am hayata ke'almana rabati vagoyim sarati bamedinot hayata Lamas. How is the city sat lonely? The city that was once filled with people. It's now like a widow. The city that, that was the greatest of nations, that was the prince of the states, now has become a tributary, a city that has to pay taxes. And this medium of comparison, we have uh, s- several times in Paragdalid. We have the uh, description, particularly in um, in verse 5 of the children, uh, which is, I think, a very poignant description. Those who used to eat the delicacies now are dying in the streets. Those who were raised in clothes of scarlet, of fine materials. Now hug the garbage cans or the, the garbages for warmth. Um, again, in, in Pasuk Zion, in verse 7, Zakun nezireha misheleg, tzachu mechalav, it used to be once that her nezirim, even her ascetics, were purer than snow, were as white and radiant, were more white and radiant than milk, admu etzem mipninim, their limbs were ruddy, sapir gizratam, their limbs were like sapphires, and now, their description, their appearance is is dark, is is black. Lo nikru they're not even recognizable on the streets. Tsafad oram alatzmam Their skin wrinkles on their bones and is as dry as a tree. So here we have a description of the vision of health that 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 used to um, be seen in Yerushalayim. And here I think that the idea of the nizirim, the ascetics 
um, being described here particularly is perhaps that even the Nizirim, those who abstain from physical pleasures, they were also the vision of perfect health. Uh, Rashi says a little bit the opposite here. In any case, the idea here is is comparing what they used to look like to what they look like today to such an extent that they are not recognizable on the streets. Now this medium, um, comparing the, what they once were to their present wretched state, of course, makes the loss more deeply felt. It's not simply that we're in this piteous state, but if you compare us to where we once were, it makes it all the more astonishing, all the more terrible. Um, at the same time, I think we'll see in the Midrash, when we, in our last session, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about Midrash Echaraba, we're going to see that Chazal view this as... Um, uh, as perhaps the ability to hang on to the past, not simply for nostalgic purposes, but in order to maintain a semblance of dignity, uh, the ability to hold on to the knowledge of their former glory means that they are not naturally um, uh, so wretched. They are naturally princes and nobles and aristocrats. And, and that's something that we're going to see in the Midrash. But here, certainly, I think the idea is, is that it makes the pain more poignantly felt. Um, one other thing that I just want to note, to take note of in this, uh, opening section, uh, well, one point that I, I also want to make is perhaps the Nizirim here, the Nizirim who are specifically mentioned here. This is not the regular man that is being described. It is instead the leader. Uh, Rashi here says that it could mean Sareha, meaning the officers, the heads of the community. And once again, what we see is that like chapter 2, and we're going to see this more, um, even more uh, more so in the second half of chapter 4, but like chapter 2, chapter 4 has a specific focus on the leaders, perhaps in order to suggest the culpability of the leaders here. Um, and we noted that that really coheres with the theme of Sadiq Viralo of innocent people suffering, which of course is highlighted by the appearance and the suffering of the children. Um, okay, I'd like to now move on to the second half of chapter four. Uh, the first half, as we noted, focuses on the children, just like we said about the second part of um, of Echa. Perak Bet focuses on the children. So the second part of Perak Bet corresponds to the first part of Perak Dalid, whereas what we're going to see is, is that the second part of Chapter 4 is going to correspond to the first part of Chapter 2. And there's going to be a very strong chiastic structure between them. What we have is A, B, B, A in terms of the relationship between the two chapters. I do want to make one more point here, and that is that the Midrash um, recognizes that this chapter is one that arouses our sense of 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 anger of unfairness and um and and really directs this or really enables us to perhaps also direct this anger at God and there's an interesting midrash in a midrash agada on sefer devarim um, which says as follows and quotes the pasuk yidei nashim rachamaniot the hands of righteous women cook their children and the midrash goes on I'll offer here a loose translation I won't read through the whole midrash in Hebrew the midrash says that when Yirmiyahu when Jeremiah saw these 
women eating their children. It has a whole story here about a mother who particularly loved and cared for her child, and in the end, there was no food in her house, and with a terrible, um, with terrible pain, she does in fact engage in this terrible act of cruelty. And when Yirmiyahu sees her, he begins to cry and scream before God, and he says to God, "Master of the universe." To which nation did you do, do this? Te- did you give these terrible troubles? And then he goes on and he says, "Where is your mercy? Where is your kindness?" Does the pasuk say, "Ki el rachum Hashem You have turned your mercy into cruelty. And the midrash goes on and quotes a verse from the second chapter in Echa. And so I think that this Midrash supports my theory that chapters 2 and 4 are chapters of um, fr- that, that, uh, that have this sort of theological approach that, um, that, that man here is suffering. He's suffering for the sins of others. He is at the mercy of the sins of his leaders. It's not exactly our fault or, or certainly, uh, it's, it's certainly the children are not culpable. And in fact, there is an abiding sense throughout the parak of Tzadik Virello. Okay, um, this ends our study of the first section of the chapter. Um, the second half of the chapter, starting in verse 11 through verse 20, certainly begins with a description of the destruction of the city, of the city's political infrastructure, similar to what we had in chapter 2, although it seems to um, be a little less focused than the beginning of chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2 was an extremely easy um, section to define. All of the verbs, if you remember, all the expressions of destruction and all of the buildings that are described as being destroyed in that first section of well, if we look here at the second part of chapter 4, certainly in the first verse, we have a strong sense that this is reminiscent of the first part of chapter 2. God pours out his anger. He lights the, the fire in Yerushalayim, the one that eats the foundations of the city. Um, this is the the beginning of the description of the the city, but it sort of seizes here. And what we have afterwards is are the responses um, to the destruction of the city, or the attempt to try to uh, perhaps also assign blame for the destruction of the city. We saw this also in chapter two, but we saw this more in the second part of chapter two. So it doesn't uh, correspond as neatly, perhaps, as we would like. Um, look, at, if you look in chapter. In chapter 4, verse 12, or even if you don't look inside, I'll read it to you. What we have here is, Lo he'eminu malchei eretz v'chol yoshvei tevel, kol yoshvei tevel, ki yavotzar ve'oyev b'sha'arei Yerushalayim. The kings of the land did not believe, and all the inhabitants of the of the world did not believe that the enemy and the troubler would come into the gates of Yerushalayim. This reminds us very strongly of um, chapter 2, verse 15, where the Ovrei Derech, those who were the passers-by, whistled and they shake their heads about Yerushalayim and they say, Is this the city about which it was said? It is perfect in beauty. It is a joy for all the land. Again, the sense is the inconsistency 
inconceivables happened. Yerushalayim apparently was considered inviolate by the world, untouchable, the special protectorate of God. And this presumably follows the attempted siege of Sancherev, which ended in failure. So again, we have this sense, not just of horror or or perhaps a, a, an upset sense, but also the feeling that those um, neighboring nations, the other uh, uh, um, the other countries, the kings of the other countries, also did not believe that this would happen, which only again increases our sense that the inconceivable has happened. I want to examine the next two psukim because I think these next two verses, verses 13 and 14, and perhaps also part of 15, give us the the sense that this chapter is focused on the sins of the leader, of the leaders, like we said in chapter 2. And here, perhaps, it's even more explicit. What we're told here in verse 13 is, Mechatot nevi'eha avonot kohaneha. Because of the sins of her prophets, the sins of her priests, who spill in her midst, in the midst of Yerushalayim, the blood of innocence. The sins of the leader, it is the prophets who are at fault. It is the priests who are at fault. This is the same conclusion as chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is the conclusion, again, that increases our sense of Tzadik Viralo. Here the verse seems to engage in a more direct accusation. They spill blood. Are we in fact talking about false prophets and priests of idolatry who actually um, uh, who actually may kill or certainly lead to bloodshed? Or perhaps this refers to events like the one in that is described in Jeremiah chapter 26 where the corruption of the leaders of the Nevi'im and the Kohanim particularly leads to bloodshed. There the Kohanim and the Nevi'im make a terrible mistake when they sentence Yirmiyahu to murder. They sentence him to, 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 to death, I should say, because they sincerely believe that he has blasphemized by saying, by prophesying that the Beit HaMikdash will be destroyed. We talked about this in our introductory lesson. And so perhaps here we're talking not just about false prophets, but about those who we relied upon to be real prophets or those who we had hoped or had potential perhaps to be real prophets certainly the priests could have um, uh, could be described here uh, describing here the priests who served in the Beit HaMikdash and so here again we level an accusation not at the general population but at the leaders now, what's interesting I think is what occurs in verse 14 because here we have a description of what's going on in verses 14 and 15 of what's going on in the city in the city streets. Na'u ivrim bachutzot, nigo'alu badam, below yuchlu yig'u bilvushehem. Suru tamei karu lamo, suru suru al tiga'u. And I'm stopping in the middle of the sentence just to explain what I've read so far. What we're told here is that blind people are wandering in the streets. They are um, they are covered with blood, so much so, they are saturated with this blood so much so that no one can even touch their clothes. And so we have here now a quote. Go away, impure one, they call to them. Go away, go away, do not touch. Um, the, the, the description here I think is very powerful, uh, especially the continuation of verse 15, which tells us, Kinatsu gamnau amru bagoyim loyosifu 
Lagor, when they wandered and when they were blown blown around, that certainly is uh, the the uh, explanation of the Ibn Ezra. Rashi says it a little bit differently, but basically, when they wandered from country to country, the nation said, "You will not continue." to live here. Actually, the description in verse 15 starts out as if it's almost a, um, I don't know if it's a friendly description, but certainly the people in the streets seem to be in Yerushalayim calling to those who are filthy with blood, telling them to be careful not to touch too much because they're, they're tamay, they're impure. However, what's interesting is, is that as the verse progresses, this call gets ominously less friendly. The picture widens. We see the bloodied and filthy and impure refugees wandering from country to country, banished unceremoniously from every place where they wander. And this is, I think, a, a stunning description because it, to some extent it's the tragic history of the Jewish people in in the diaspora, in, in exile. Wherever they wandered, they were unceremoniously or sometimes perhaps very ceremoniously banished. Um, this verse then contains an alarming truth, almost a, a prophetic truth, and that's not really what I wanted to point out here. What I wanted to point out here is that we basically have, in the aftermath of the accusation, which is leveled at the Nevi'im, at the prophets, and at the priests, we basically have two groups of people wandering around Yerushalayim. We have the Ivrim, the blind people, and we have the Tme'im. We have the impure people. And so the, 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 um, the consequence of the destruction seems to be directly related to the failure of the leaders. Don't forget, who are we talking about? We're talking about the prophets who are meant to be seers, right? Another word for Navi is a chose, a seer. And so because they have failed to do their job, they have produced blind men. And the priests who are meant to be pure and ensure the purity of the people have instead spawned contaminated people. And so what we really have a sense here is is that there's an incredibly orderly depiction of the way in which society uh, falls apart directly parallel to the degeneration of its leaders. The consequence of the leader's failure is, in fact, the uh, what happens to the people, is the impurity and the blindness of the people. Um, now, I'm going to start begin to draw our shiur to a close. I do want to note as well that... Um, in, in verse 20, we have perhaps the only pasuk, the only verse in Megillat Echa that seems to refer to someone particularly. We have a description here, Ruach Apeinu, Mashiach Hashem, Nilkad B'Shechitotam, Asher Amarnu, Vagoim, the breath of our nostrils, the anointed of God has been captured, has been ensnared in their traps. The one about whom we said, under his auspices, under his protection, we will dwell amongst nations. Now there is a, a tremendous amount of controversy as to who we're talking about here. Who is this Mashiach Hashem? Uh, the uh, opinions range from Yoshiahu, who actually died 23 years before the Chorban, to Tzidkiyahu, who was in fact the last king before the Chorban, to Gedaliah ben Achikam, who was not even a king who was not actually a Mashiach Hashem, but who was the last leader of Am Yisrael um, before they actually go completely into exile. And so what we have here, once again, is a description of the failure of the leader or the focus on the leader in this section, which again we've been developing throughout and which corresponds to chapter 2. 
Now, um, I, I want to say one more thing about this chapter. Of course, the chapter, like all chapters, ends with a call for vengeance upon the enemies, which is the beginning of Geulah. Uh, the chapter also ends with a promise. The last verse of this chapter, after uh, the narrator promises vengeance upon Edom, um, the last verse says as follows, Tam avonech batzion, when your sinfulness ends, daughter of Zion, lo yosif lahaglotech, he will not continue to exile you. Pakad avonech bat Edom, but when your sin will be remembered, daughter of Edom, gila al chatotaych, your sins will be revealed. And there's something, of course, ominous and threatening about this. The parallel structure of this verse is designed to highlight the difference between the differences between Israel's punishment and the sentence against her enemy. Israel, of course, Am Yisrael, has a covenant with God, whereby God promises never to destroy her totally. And there's also a linguistic relationship between the words Lo Yosif Lahaglotech, which appears here in verse 22, God will not continue to exile you. And what we saw in Pasuk Tetzayin, where we were told, Pene Hashem Chilkam, the face of God scattered them, scattered Amisrael around the world. Lo Yosif Lahabitam, because he did not continue to look at them. In other words, God punished them and then he turned his face away from them. Once again, the theme of Hester Panim, of God hiding his face from us. But I think I noted, I'm not sure if I said this in the first Shior where we talked about this theme of Hester Panim, Re'e Hashem Vahabita. Hester Panim, while it is a terrible punishment, it is also a punishment that, um, that contains within it a spark of God's chesed, of God's kindness. Of course, the idea is, is that if God is looking at us and we are being sinful, he is forced to punish us, visamti et panai ba'ishahu, I will place my face against that person. In turning away from us, he does us a kindness by enabling us to rehabilitate ourselves uh, slowly but surely and not for him not to have to destroy us. Um, but here again, the words, lo yosif lahabitam, God will not continue to look at us, is matched by the words, lo yosif lahaglotech, God will not continue to exile us. And this, of course, it counters the previous verse by asserting that it's only a temporary situation, which is what we know about Hester Panim. Hester Panim is part of the covenantal relationship. It's part of the plan. And therefore, it's not... Um, it's not devastating. I mean, it certainly is devastating temporarily, but it's not devastating in the long term. So what we see here actually in this chapter for the first time is that this chapter actually ends with a bit of hope for the future. We will not be in exile forever. There's almost this glimmer of light far away at the end of the tunnel. This is going to be important when we talk about the structure of Echa, when we talk about how Echa progresses from chapter to chapter. And so certainly here we get a glimpse of a little bit of that progression. There um, um, the other thing I think that, it, that we have to note here is that the structure here in this parak in this chapter is not chiastic. It is not cyclical. It seems to have a uh, linear movement from one point to the next, and this is perhaps highlighted by this glimmer of hope at the end of the parak. I will close our study of chapter 4 of Megillat Echa by once again reiterating that this chapter is extraordinarily similar to chapter 2 in its content 
in its linguistics and in its theological approach. The horror of the destruction, God's anger, the famine, the focus on the children, the cannibalism of the mothers, obviously the most terrible um, uh, situation that one could conjure up, the sins of the prophets, the focus on the leaders, the shock of the Gentiles, the sense that this chapter is um, is is really uh, um, has this the feeling of Sadiq Viralo, and there's a tremendous amount of linguistic connections between the chapters. Birosh Kolchutzot we have in both chapters. Olel Vionek, the central um, role of the word Shafach in each chapter, and many of the things that we've been pointing out throughout. One could certainly make a very nice chart of linguistic similarities between chapter 2 and chapter 4. What I'm going to claim in our um, in our second to last year, when I talk about the structure of Megillat Echa, what I'm going to try to claim is that these two chapters are similar in content and similar linguistically because they're trying to highlight the similar um, the similar theological approach in these two chapters. If it is true that chapters 2 and 4 are th- similar theologically in the sense that they don't accept the, um, the suffering, that they are outraged by the suffering, that they never get to a point where they say, Khatati, I have sinned, it all makes sense, but rather they exist with this feeling of the illogical nature of the suffering with the the terrible experience of the children of those who clearly are not culpable, then what we're going to see in the next year is that chapters 1 and 5 also correspond one to the other, both in terms of content, language, and their theological approach. And so what we're going to have here is a larger chiastic structure in Megillat Echa, which is going to highlight the theology of Megillat Echa.